What do you think I'm going to do? Worry about me. Welcome to Couch Potato Theater here on the Fandom Podcast Network. On Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. You may own your favorite movies digitally or on physical media. However, when they air on cable TV or land on your streaming channel, you love what you're watching so much, you don't get off that couch. And that's the definition of what our show is all about. My name is Kevin, your host for this special Couch Potato Theater. And we are celebrating Payback 1999. And we are talking about the theatrical and the director's cut. Payback is celebrating its 25th anniversary as of this recording. And uh, you know what? I can't do this alone. I got to bring in my uh, bring my fellow outfit or slash syndicate uh, members here. And we're going to start with my co-host, A Blood of Kings, Highlander podcast on the Fandom Podcast Network. What's going on, Lee? How are you, sir? Nerdy podcast hosts. Is there any other kind? I would have been a podcast host. I just wasn't dumb enough. <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that, but they're like, yeah, you're doing the male voiceover. I love it. How are you doing, buddy? Doing good, man. Doing good. Now, when I mentioned um, that I was looking at doing this podcast to celebrate its 25th anniversary payback, I think you were like, oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely love this movie since I saw it in the theater. Like I I was just uh, enthralled by this one. It was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna get into that a lot, but we got to have someone else on here, uh, fellow action fan and fellow movie fan. We call her ooh, the queen of movie foo on Time Warp. Welcome, Lacey Adderhall. What's going on? Not much. How are you guys? Doing good. Doing good. So now, when we were talking beforehand. I know you like this movie, but you were a little confused at first. <laughs> Please share. <laughs> okay. I love Mel Gibson. Uh, I've seen all of his movies and everything, you know, so that's just never a problem for me to, to talk about a Mel Gibson movie. Um, in my brain, when, when I read the text, I was like, Oh yeah, that's great. And I pulled, <laughs> I pulled it out of the shelf and I was sitting ready to read it. And I knew we were going to, do the two different versions. And I saw that there was a, a special feature that talked about the differences. So I decided to watch that first so that I could be like extra, you know, pay extra attention to it so I could have more to say. And he starts talking and I'm like, okay, this is, he didn't talk about the kid and <laughs> is Maria Bello in this? I don't remember Maria, but I was completely like, I, I was in my brain, we were going to be talking about Ransom. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? what is going on and he's and then it's talking about like the, the you know the, all this kind of, and i'm just like uh-huh, uh-huh and then all of a sudden it clicked and i was like oh we're doing baby oh this is gonna be awesome so i was still very excited <laughs> it took me like four days before i actually like snapped because <laughs> i did that has happened to me before trust me but i wanted you to share that because i thought that was funny <laughs> and i was just like uh, <laughs> What? No. Okay. 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 Oh, yeah. We are talking, Lacey, we are talking about payback. So you're good to go. Yes. And I know, I know you've done your homework. Yeah. Uh, yes. Payback here on the fandom podcast network. And, uh, I, I thought it was, I was really excited about, about doing this film on the fandom podcast network for cash potato theater, not because I like the film, but because it's got a theatrical and a director's cut called the straight up the director's cut. And you could say they're two completely different movies. It's been said before, 
And we're going to talk about that. Um, and uh, it's also this this uh, book is also based on a book. This movie is based on a book. We'll get into that in a minute. But first, I thought we'd just go straight into the plot description here. Real quick, all right? Which one? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I believe this is going to be the uh, theatrical version. So there we go. <laughs> all right, here we go. Val Resnick and Porter, two small-time bandits, hit a Chinese gang together and managed to get $140,000. But Val Resnick needs $130,000 alone to buy himself back into the syndicate or outfit or syndicate or outfit. So Val turns on Porter together with Porter's wife, Lynn, who kills him with two shots in the back. But Porter survives, and half a year later, he is back seeking his share $70,000. But when he finally finds Val, Porter quickly learns that he has to go much further up the ladder in order to get his money from the guys who have it, the syndicate. Working alone can't be realized anymore, so Porter teams up with his old flame, Rosie, a very exclusive prostitute. Together, they now start playing the teams against each other. All right. Let me get to some production notes here, guys. The film was shot from September to November 1997 in Chicago and Los Angeles, though neither city is referred to in the film. Although credited as director Brian Helgeland's cut of the film was not the theatrical version released to audiences. The director notoriously clashed with producer Gibson over Gibson's ideas for the film. After the end of principal photography, Gibson admitted that he was instrumental in having Helglin removed as director before the film was released. A script rewrite by Terry Hayes was ordered. There was initially some uncertainty on who directed the reshoots, with some sources claiming it was production designer, production designer John Mayer. However, Paul Abskell has stated on his website that he, in fact, directed the new scenes. The new director reshot 30% of the film. The, the intent was to make the Porter character accessible. The film's tagline became, get ready, to sh get ready to root for the bad guy, a potentially controversial scene between Porter and Lynn, which arguably involves a spatial, spatial abuse, was excised and more plot elements were added to the third act. After 10 days of reshoots, a new opening scene and voiceover track were also added, and Chris Christopherson walked on as the new villain. All right, we're going to get into the differences between, of course, the theatrical, I got the DVD here, and the Blu-ray version of the straight-up director's cut here, guys. But I want to go back in time to 1999 or whenever you first saw this film. Give us your first reactions and what kind of impact it had on you. Lee, I told you we were doing this first, man, and you told me how excited you were about talking about it. Tell me about it. Uh, I flipped out. This was just... Uh, it was this string of really good like 70s style action movies done with 90s style cinematography that really just, I mean, it's like if, you know, uh, Peckinpah had a, the budget and technology, this is the kind of movie he would have made. I mean, it's just powerful. Uh, and this is kind of like the end of that string. Cause you had heat, you had Ronin, you had a few others like that. And then this was just like, this was the exclamation point. Uh, I remember walking in, uh, going to see it, you know, it's a Mel Gibson movie. He had a really good run there. And, um, you know, you and I disagree about a, a lot of stuff, you know, what our favorite is, you know, being the whole tombstone thing, uh, you know, was the big thing on the last one. But this one, straight up, we are on the same page. This is Mel Gibson's bad, badassest, bestest movie. Um, 
and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean, I, I was probably being laconic and grumpy on purpose for a month after this. Like I could not help myself. <laughs> Lacey, uh, tell us when you first saw this, what kind of impact did it first have on you? Um, I saw it in the theater. Um, I was working at a theater at the time. Um, I want to say it was the AMC theater uh, right around the corner from my house. So um, as an employee, uh, every once in a while, we would have to screen the, the films beforehand. Um, or at, like, at least the employees weren't normally allowed to sit in on those screenings. But this is one of the ones that I actually got to see it at like two o'clock in the morning, um, like three weeks before it came out because they had to, to screen the print um, <clears throat> after they built it up. And so for like two weeks or three weeks, I, I was, I, I was <laughs> telling everyone, I was like, you gotta go see payback. It was, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. That's awesome. That's cool. I, I saw this when I just February 1999 is when this movie came out. And I remember cause I moved to Virginia in January of 1999 towards the end of January. And, uh, I was, uh, working for a game company in Norfolk, Virginia, and I was literally the traveling salesman for 1999. We were uh, promoting, uh, the new star Wars game for, uh, the phantom menace that was coming out. And I was on the road nonstop, like pretty much soon after I arrived. I don't remember what city I was in. I don't remember what theater I was in, but I remember seeing this in the theater somewhere on the road, somewhere in America, probably near a game store, near a convention somewhere. Uh, and I just, I loved it. And I remember going back in another city, in another state and finding a theater and watching it again. Cause I was only always on the move. And I remember, you know, I've always been a Mel Gibson fan from, I think the first film I remember seeing was uh, uh, the road warrior. AKA Mad Max two. And then I remember seeing a uh, Mad Max after that, the, the original version of the original movie, <laughs> always been a, a Mel Gibson fan. And I just remember being really surprised about this character and this he's, he's a horrible person. <laughs> you know, there's no one to like her. No one, no one's good in this really. And, but it was, it was fascinating. I was, I just remember being glued to the screen, glued to his character and just fascinating what he was going to do, especially the opening scenes where like he's down on his luck and he's using his fast fingers to pit pocket and, and knowing no to uh, go to the bank right away before the cars get canceled and get cash and then using the cash to buy, you know, you know, and credit cards to buy the jewelry and knowing to, that he has to fence the jewelry to get a gun. It, I just I thought, oh, that was fascinating. And this has become one of my most rewatchable uh, movies in the last 10 or 15 years. And I will also state it is my favorite Mel Gibson film. And that's, you know, I like a lot of his films, you know, and, but th this one here is right at the top for me. guys. Um, I want to ask you guys that actually real quick, when it comes to Mel Gibson, what is your favorite Mel Gibson film? Uh, Lee? Oh, I mean, obviously this one um, yeah. after this, I gotta say, I was really impressed with his Hamlet. Really? Yeah. Uh, not only did he do a, a good Hamlet, but uh, he did this big uh, HBO series getting into the meaning of Hamlet. And like, uh, you know, when you're a kid growing up in uh, Iowa, you just kind of see Hamlet as like, ah, thee and thou and all this stuff. And uh, he literally got into like all the soliloquies and breaking down the meaning and, you know, what people are going through. It's like, uh, I didn't have teachers that did that. Uh, but he kind of did that. Um, 
you know, I'd say maybe after that, Machete 2. Uh, he was just wonderfully crazy in that. Um, <laughs> Those are not answers I was expecting, but I love them. <laughs> and, of course, Braveheart, you know, uh, you got to love somebody uh, just beating people to death and stabbing them and cutting legs off. I mean, that's you know, right. kind of my thing. Lacey, what is your favorite Mel Gibson movie? It's so hard, man. Like, he's got categories, right? I mean, I, I think I could go for The Patriot if we're talking about, you know, historical. I think I could go for Boss Level if we're talking, like, more recent. Um, I could go... I still need to see that guy. movie. I need, I need to like, see Boss Level, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's Groundhog Day with yeah. guns. Yeah. It's good, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, I could go for like Tequila Sunrise or Bird on a Wire if we're going comedy. Yeah. Pick one. Come pick on. one. I, mean, I can't. Come um, on, pick one. The Patriot. Okay, that's a good one. I, I By the like way, that. I have a sword from The Patriot. Nice. Uh, Check Icario's okay. sword that he carries at the Battle of Yorktown. I have that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. All right, guys. Now, there is some pop culture impact on this, and this is based on a book. Payback is based on the novel The Hunter by Donald E. Westlake using the pseudonym Richard Stark, which had early been adapted to the 1967 film noir classic Point Break, directed by John Borman and starring Lee, Har Har Lee Marvin. Excuse me. Has I believe you meant Point Blank, not Point Break. That's a different movie. Uh, I did say Point. Yeah, you're right. Now I do want blank. to see Lee Marvin in Point Break. That would be amazing. I want to see Lee Marvin in Point Break. I want to break. see that too. Yes. Yeah. No, Point Blank. You are correct, sir. Now, has anyone seen that film? No. Yeah. It is, on, yeah, it is on Tubi. I'm going to watch it later, but I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to compare the two. So that's why I didn't want to see it before I did this thing though, but it is based on this. And I believe, uh, I think there might be more on there, but, um, uh, I thought it was interesting that it was called the hunter and that the payback was not called the hunter, but it was definitely called the, uh, what it is. And I always thought that was kind of interesting there. Uh, but, uh, have you, have you guys had any thought about reading the book? Cause I haven't. Uh, you know, when I was uh, doing the research on this and I saw that, I'm like, that's one that I'd look for. Uh, yeah. I, I've always liked noir uh, stuff. It uh, looks like one of those quick reads. Uh, but with noir, they're just so good at the minimalism. You get a lot out of it. Uh, yeah. And I'd, I'd like to see the bones of uh, this story, where it came from. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, def I'm definitely going to watch the Lee Marvin film, Point Blank. That, that's, that I want to kind of see and then just kind of see the different interpretations of this book. Were you going to say something, Lacey? Yeah, I think that the Parker series is like 18 or something books. It's not one. Right. I mean, he, it was a, he had like a deal for these books um, and he did a whole bunch of them. Um, at least gotcha. six. Yeah. I, but I think it's like over a dozen though. Yeah. So guys, these are my copies here on the uh, slideshow here on the YouTube video of my versions of this. And Lacey, I got to give you a shout out here till recently there. I'm going to show this real quick here uh, <laughs> that I did not know that this version right here existed until Lacey did. And Lacey, uh, when I told you we were doing this, you showed me a copy of this and I'm like, what the, why did you get that? <laughs> and <laughs> What's cool was that um, the DVD version here that I have, of course, is the original theatrical version. As far as I know, never got a USA release on Blu-ray. All we had was the DVD, the DVD version of the theatrical and then the Blu-ray of only of the um, director's cut. But this version here, which is like a Canadian slash European version, has both versions on it. 
and it's uh, multi-regional. You can play it in your regular Blue Wave prayers. That, that's what you did, right, Lacey? Yeah. Um, I believe it was, you, you asked me if I had watched the movie yet, and I said that I had seen it six times because I watched both copies, and then, no, that was a different movie. No, I watched this one, I think, four times because there's right. a commentary on each one and then two. I don't know. I had seen it a lot in the last couple of days. Yeah. But uh, yeah. anyway, thank you for the heads up. And that I got we got that on Amazon. That's where we got that, right? Mm-hmm. And the move the theatrical version is streaming somewhere. I want to say it's either uh, HBO Max or um uh Amazon. So if you haven't it's seen Amazon. It, it is Amazon. Yep. You watch it later? Okay, cool. Yep. Definitely. Cool. So guys, uh I want to get into the payback one story two movie so like i said there is the director's cut and we need to talk about the differences so uh the director heglin's version straight up the director's cut was released on dvd blu-ray and hdv on april 10th 2007 after an october 2006 run at the austin film festival the director's cut version features a female Bronson that is never seen and only heard over the phone voiced by Sally Kellerman does not include the voiceover by Porter and several Bronson related scenes during their scuffle, which is longer than in the theatrical version and was the main source of controversy. Porter earlier tells Lynn that his picture with Rosie was taken before they met, thereby rendering her jealousy unjustified. This version has an entirely different ambiguous ending reporter is seriously wounded at the train station shootout and driven off by Rosie. All right. So I found a cool article here, guy, that kind of that breaks down the versions of the the, uh, director's cut here. And I got this. I want to give him credit here. Movie slash censorship dot com. They had a great um, article there. And this I found interesting. I didn't know this. Shortly before Brian Heglin won an Oscar for Best Screenplay for L.A. Confidential and a Razzie for Worst Screenplay, The Postman, in 1998. Can you imagine getting a Razzie and an Oscar in the same year? <laughs> you mean like uh, Halle Berry? Like- and Demi Moore, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that, is, yeah. that is fascinating. Oh, and Sandra Bullock. <laughs> nice. The yeah. same movie. So before, so when that happened, he worked as a director for Mel Gibson's Icon Productions, helming the translation of his own script based on the novel by Donald E. Westlake into film. When Mel Gibson sold the film to Paramount and Warner Brothers, it became clear that both studios actually wanted a movie more accessible to the mainstream audience, like a Lethal Weapon series of the film. In its original version, Payback didn't have that mass appeal. Brian, the director, got the chance to rethink his version. Uh, and alter it so it would become closer to the studio's wishes. Especially the ending seemed to be a problem, but he couldn't do it. He always pictured the rat film to be the way he wrote it and the way he shot it. So other writers were brought into the project, and they basically rewrote an almost complete entire third act. Mel Gibson asked if Brian if he wanted to direct the new scenes, but he declined, and so Helgen's participation in payback was over for the time being. Now, the reshoots had to be postponed because Mel Gibson went off to shoot Lethal Weapon 4 after the studio sent sent production designer John Mayer with additional $30 to $40 million, sources vary, to shoot new scenes, which were mostly concentrated in the last third of the movie. Can you guys imagine that? We're going to spend another $30 to $40 million for 10 days of shooting and add a completely different act. How many times has that been done? Has anything come to mind, guys? Oh, 
probably a lot. We just don't know about it. The Snyder Cut. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Snyder got over 100 million, I think, didn't he? Yeah. That was the, crazy. Yeah. Suicide Squad, the Yeah. Yeah. So overall, the theatrical version is a little funnier, easier, accessible, and more spectacular. Many shots show Porter with a lighter facial expression, almost smirking, and the dog survives. Above all, the disturbing scene in which Porter beats up his wife, Lynn, without the audience knowing the reason for it at the point is now missing. The theatrical version takes it easy for the viewer to recognize events and characters using voiceovers. Also, there's two nicely shot explosions, a form of action that is absent from the director's cut. Um, so finally, uh, this guy direct, this guy does recommend the director's cut for everyone that liked the theatrical version. It heavily differs from the latter and is worth another sit through. I want to stop it there guys. Cause I want to ask your opinion on something. And Lee, I know it's been a little while since you've seen the, uh, um, uh, the, the director's cut, but I wanted to get your impression on when you did see it compared to the original version, what was going through your mind at the time? Um, now, I'm usually the guy that likes the director's cut. Um, you know, I will sit through the the four-hour version of uh, Troy and, you know, Lord of the Rings and uh, Kingdom of Heaven and all that stuff. I I watch uh, the Snyder Cut every year. I, I like the longer stories. Um, I like darker. I don't think it was as good. Um, that's kind of a weird thing for me to say. But it we'll, didn't have the we'll, power. We'll get, into the, we'll get into our analysis on how you finally feel on that. Because I think I was feeling the same way when I originally saw it, but um, did it did it go? Did it sit with you like you know what? This is kind of fun to watch. Maybe every other time I watch this movie, or were you kind of like I'm done with it? I was kind of bored to be honest. Um, yeah, you know i've I've watched the 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 rental copy that I bought at Hollywood Video so many <laughs> times that I couldn't watch it anymore. Uh, it was pretty much dead, so I had to watch it on Amazon. Um, nice. And um, I never, I saw the uh, director's cut, never bought it, which, you know, I have a, a room just like your guys at home. You know, I've got all the DVDs I want. That's one that isn't there. Uh, so I, I was just not impressed. I probably saw it twice. It never really, you know, the second time I was giving it a chance and it's, it didn't sit with me. And uh, I don't know. Okay. All right. uh, it didn't Thanks. have the impact as the, of the first one. Gotcha. Lacey, what about you when you first saw the director's cut compared to the regular? <clears throat> well, I think because uh, this is going to sound so pretentious, uh, because I have a film degree, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's so, it, it, that's not how I mean it, but I, I spend a lot of time in college ripping apart, like ripping things apart, you know, like you have to mm -hmm. start at one end, you know, whether it's the sound or the lighting or the script or what, you know, whatever. Um, I like a combination of the two. So <clears throat> all in all, if I was going to pick one to watch, it would probably be the theatrical because specifically because they don't kill the dog. Right. If you're going to like other, if there are several things back and forth that I prefer in the director's cut, but he kills the dog, I'm out. <laughs> like there's a, there's a root, there's a book on screenwriting called don't kill the dog. That is, a, that is a book that I had to read for class so that I could get my degree in screenwriting. Right, like, right. Don't kill the dog. So, yeah. I think Most we love The movie is specifically about the dog dying. Like, my I, dog skip, uh, red fern grows, the old yeller. I, 
Marvel you know, it's funny though. I felt it was Turner and Hooch that really just really started to turn people off from the dog dying. Mm-hmm. I, I think that was that was it. Because every time I go back, they go, "Yes, we do remember those older films where the dog dies, gets shot, whatever." But I think it was Turner and Hooch where things started to change. That you, you don't you don't kill the dog. You just don't do it. Um, you, you know, had it coming, I, let's be honest. What's that? Hooch had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> Hooch did not have it coming. Oh man. He's bad. So anyway, um, I remember going, okay, here. So I remember going like, okay, it's, I was a little disappointed, but man, that end shootout scene at the train station was freaking awesome and not in the theatrical cut. And I also noticed a few other Val scenes too, which I'll get into a little bit later, but it was that in, uh, 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 shootout. And I'm like, and then in my head, I'm going, wait a minute. In my own version of this cut film, and I take a little bit of this, like that ending, and squeeze it in there. But like, no, it's like, how do you fit that into like this ending? And so I have this like Kevin cut in my head, trying to figure out how I can get that damn train shootout scene into it because it's so damn good. But I'm like, I don't know if it works because there's so much stuff that happens. And then then there's a scene in the where they captured the two thugs and put them inside the the meat truck, you know, and. One of the thugs says, you know, oh, didn't I like, you know, F you once? And she says something and then, you know, uh, Porter gets her to leave. And then like Porter just kills the guy right there while he's handcuffed. The other guy, I'm like, that's a tough scene to watch, you know, Mm -hmm. and that'd be cool to get that in there, too. So I had to eventually in my brain treat them as two different films. And I, I haven't met anyone that says they prefer the director's cut over the uh, theatrical cut. They do like it for, for what it is, but I did want to go over the differences and uh, I got these uh, with a combination between my own notes and IMDB. So first of all, there's no voiceover of Porter in the beginning or in through the whole film at all. And this brings me back to one of my biggest pet peeves of one of my favorite movies of all time. And I feel like I'm always in the minority with this guys is I do not like the director's cut, the final cut, or whatever they call it now, of Blade Runner. I can't stand it. I like the original theatrical cut because I love Harrison Ford's voiceover. And also, I like the fact that, you know, I I think it's a better, more interesting story if he is human falling for a replicant, not that he is secretly a replicant as well. Just my personal opinion. But I I love... Say that again, Lacey? I didn't like either one, so I'm with you. It's it's no longer a... (laughs) I like Lee, it being you, ambiguous. Lee, Lee, what's your thought? Do you, do you prefer the director's cut or the theatrical cut of Blade Runner? There was uh, whichever cut has leaves it ambiguous as to whether he's a replicant or not. I that's think that's the direct. I think that's the director's Direct. cut. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. and I, I think uh, just because I was watching that when I was doing like a lot of literature classes, you know, and we were, you know, like Lacey does, you take apart, you search for meaning, and you search for all this stuff, and it's like. Um, intellectually it made it a more uh fun movie at the time uh you know and i would you know i I wrote a paper on uh the philosophy uh philosophical uh questions posed in conan the barbarian so like i was getting deep into this stuff Uh, (laughs) okay and and if we ever do it i will definitely bring that paper out but uh I, i really do like the idea that he was um that it's ambiguous at the end and that he has to kind of choose his own fate and knowing what hers is uh i I wish that his vo- his um, voiceover was better because it sounded like he was like waking up and 
like, uh, yeah, I'm going to do this. I don't, I don't get that personally, yeah. <laughs> but it's Harrison Ford. I'm a Harrison Ford fan. Yeah. And I, I'm just, anyway, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too far down to the rabbit hole of Blade Runner here, but that's what this is reminding me of. Like when I was rewatching this director's cut, I'm like, where's this voice? I'm like, Oh God, they took it out. And the reason why I'm not a fan of that is because I like the fact that Mel Gibson narrates this as he is Porter. Cause he's got this Porter cadence, you know, he does something a little different with the Porter voice and the way that he delivers. And I love that and not hearing it. And I know people put the voiceovers to kind of make people <coughs> understand the plot line. It's, it's a plot driven tool and, you know, sometimes it's a cop out and I get that, but I did not, I never got that with this voiceover in that. Uh, I, I want to ask you, Lacey, you recently saw it. What do you think of the difference of not having um, the voiceover in the director's cut compared to the theatrical? If the director's cut had had the voiceover and the dog survived, I would prefer the director's cut. Interesting. I like that. Well, I like that. What, two things that I prefer are the voiceover and the dog survives. Everything else in the director's cut, I'm in. What about you, Lee? Are you happy with not having the voiceover, or what do you think? I think the voiceover needs to be there for a noir film. Yeah, uh, th- it has to have something. Uh, yeah, you know, you yeah. you can't take that kind of quintessential element out of it. I mean, you got the Dashiell Hammett, uh, you know, background. Uh, even like Porte des Ombres, the original noir film uh, from France, like it has um, the voiceover, and it's meant to be there. It's meant to be uh, to put yourself in the head of the main character instead of being like a passive witness to everything that's right. going on. So as we are hearing his internal monologue, it becomes our internal monologue and we sort of become Porter rather than right. we're yep. somebody that sees what Porter does. Like, so we can justify Porter better. That's a good point. Well said. Well said. So uh, here's some of the other differences here. The opening shot, and this is the director's cut, of course. The opening shot of Porter in the doctor's office is not in the director's cut. The film begins with Porter on the bridge returning to the city. Brian's cut doesn't suggest the double cross until we see the flashback. There is a more harsh exchange between <coughs> Porter visiting Rosie Maria Bello for the first time. And it's a tough scene to watch because he beats the crap out of her. Uh Odds and ends with Val Resnick, played by Greg Henry, throughout the film includes a curbside threat to David Paymer. Did he beat character. up Maria Bello or did he beat up? Uh, I'm sorry. It's um, the wife. Yeah. Wife. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is a harsh exchange with Porter when he does visit Rose, Rosie. Yeah. Uh, I think she throws something at him and stuff like that. So I'm getting the two mixed up. I apologize yeah. for that. Um, catches- yes. Yeah. He catches the thing that she throws, uh, Rosie. A small exchange between Porter and the Asian gang. When Val breaks in and beats up Rosie, Porter the dog gets shot in the head and remains dead. In Mel's cut, of course, the dog survives. Two versions of the film begin to change greatly when Porter confronts Fairfax, James Coburn. The dialogue is different and the outcome scene is changed. Bronson, the outfit boss, is played by Sally Kellerman rather than Chris Christopherson. She's never seen in the film, instead interacting with Porter over speakerphones. When Porter kill, when Porter begins to kill her associates, the boss almost immediately gives in to Porter's demands. In Mel's cut, the boss was a bigger character and provided a bigger climax. All the boss's, all the boss's son and torture scenes are not in Brian's cut of the film. And torture scenes are referring to um, him getting his feet smashed with a hammer. 
start to look like you went to market. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The climax of the film takes place in a mass transit platform, train station. Porter arranges to pick up his cut of the money, but the boss dispatches hitman and one hit woman to stop him. He gets the money, but is shot in the chest. Stumbling out of the station, he shoots a couple of men in the car. Porter begins to die. Rosie finds him and slaps him back to life. Porter suggests a doctor he knows can patch him up. The final shot is a two of them driving out. Now, as I mentioned, there's no Mel voiceover, a la Blade Runner. Fairfax, a.k.a. James Coburn and Carter, William Devane mentioned as in charge by Val. Now, this is what I was referring to either earlier seeing that mel beats up lynn his ex-wife deborah unger was put back into the film uh and it 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 was quote no one wants to see mel beat up a woman studio originally cut the scene deborah unger said her character deserved it and she said that in the um uh in the interview uh in one of the special features that she basically double crossed him and shoots him in the back yeah a few selected smacking somebody Smacking somebody if they shot you in the back a couple times, I feel like that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, you know, FYI. So a few selected scenes, including Val, and I, I want to make a case for this, guys. I want to see what you think of this. I almost feel like the one thing the director's cut does is it gives more Val. And I love Greg Henry in this film as Val. He is just one of the slimiest people ever. He is so good at what he does. And there's a few selected scenes, including more Val. Like when he gets Frisk to meet Mr. Carter, he, they, they pull like three guns on him, including the little uh, ankle uh, holster, which we see him grabbing for after Porter shoots him in Rosie's apartment. And, uh, and then the funny thing, too, is when Mr. Carter tells him to basically move out of the, uh, the syndicate uh, apartment, they pull his security detail and you can tell these guys hate him, which is very funny, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a re- really cool scene. Uh, and then this is a scene I mentioned earlier too. Val's thugs, the ones that leave him are tricked by Porter and Rosie Maria Bello, who is driving in a moving truck. They cuff the thugs inside the truck. And one of the thugs, one of the thugs is very cocky and says, to Rosie, I think I effed you once. She threatens him with a gun, but it's Porter who kills him and lets the other one live. Now, I broke down the train station shootout, guys, because this is what happened. Porter encounters seven thugs, six men, one woman, waiting for him. He knocks one out, shoots two others in the bathroom, two others he disarms and sends them on the train, which is a very funny scene. Shoots another who dropped the money off. The woman thug shoots Porter, but Porter shoots and kills her. Wounded badly, that's when he's leaving the train and is spotted by three more thugs. Now, you'll recognize these three thugs because the thugs he he killed in the theatrical version when they were in his car trying to call him in his apartment with the bomb underneath the bed, one played by John Glover, those are the ones that he shoots at. He kills uh, um, one of them, and then the two other drive off, so nothing really happens. And I thought it was kind of interesting because Porter drops to the street after he's shot. He puts a cigarette backwards in his mouth, rips off the filter, and then the montage of him getting betrayed is playing while he is seemingly dying. Then Rosie comes to rescue him, and uh, he's in bad shape right there. So um, I want to get your thoughts on that scene. Which what one? is your thought of it? Is it is it one that you're fine with it being deleted? Because 
as you know, I love it. And I wish there was a way they could have squeezed it into the theatrical version, but it's a completely different ending. Uh, Lacey, you recently saw it. What's your thoughts? So the reason, I mean, the, the difference in the ending, I think that this one is better because if you go through the Christopher Straverson and his son and the, the, all the different, you know, kidnapping the son from the boxing, all that kind of stuff, um, the kid's innocent. The one thing that you see for the whole, on both of them, the only thing that doesn't fit is him kidnapping this kid. Everybody else that he attacks or kills or beats the crap out of deserves it once you find out what happened. Right, right. It's a good point. Kid, yeah. That whole thing, like the ransom thing, that, maybe that's why I thought we were watching Ransom. No, um, the, the whole ransom thing with the kid just didn't, it, it didn't work. So the whole idea that, you know, everyone shows up. The only thing that I really did enjoy, I did want, I, I loved the, um, the explosion. Like there's two really cool explosions in theatrical yeah. that you don't get because the car, the car and then the apartment at the end that kills. Yeah, Christmas yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if you're going to dispatch John Glover, <laughs> you want to do it with fire and explosions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with Greg Henry, that man can do no wrong. Like he is amazing. Whether he's Mitchum Huntsberger on Gilmore girls or the mayor in Slither where he's like screaming about the, <laughs> the and the doctor, get him a Dr. Pepper. Talk. I mean, he's just <coughs> Star Lord's grandpa. I mean, he's yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah. Lee, mm-hmm. your thoughts on that end shootout scene? Because that was the big, huge difference, the way this film ended. Um, uh, the one thing I'll say, I like John Glover lasting longer. Yeah. Being a fan of a shootout, I like it. Uh, the way Porter has been set up, he wouldn't have fallen for that. He wouldn't have walked right into seven guys. Uh, you know, he would have figured something out. Like, um, And I think that... Um, Somewhere in between is the right thing. Uh, but uh, I I don't like that uh, John Glover went out the way he did in the theatrical cut. Right. But I kind of feel like he wouldn't go out this way in this movie. Uh, also, I, I don't like a Shane ending. I think it's... Explain yourself. What do you mean? Uh, Shane ending is like, oh, I'm fine and ride off into the sunset. And at the end of Shane, uh, you know... You see him right off and then he starts to slump over in his saddle and like everyone argues, is he dead or is he just tired? Uh, and there are no more gunmen in the valley. You know, I mean, they they did it in the last Rambo movie. They did it in the last. So you're movie. saying the ambiguous ending of the director's cut of whether or not he survives. Yeah, I, okay. I don't. I, yeah, I don't like those. But um, you like to know for sure whether they're alive or dead. Yeah. Brian Hoagland uh, was very clear in the commentary that he did <laughs> die. And the yeah, only yeah. reason that he smiles as the last thing is because that's the only smile you see in the whole film is he smiles when he knows that he's gone. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of like him outsmarting everybody. This one right here. Version. Yeah. Yeah. I like him outsmarting everybody in the other version. I think that's a really good way to do it. And it's, it's somehow even more badass. You know, I mean, he, he took a hammer to three toes to get there. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then just like, Basically, rhinoceros birthed himself into the the backseat of a, a, a limousine. <laughs> was that an Ace Ventura two uh, reference? Yes, it was. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> I knew if anyone uh, was going to get it. <laughs> gotcha. I, also, um, I preferred the color time, the color on the the director's cut as well. Like the blue, what? that ice blue, just didn't it, it didn't seem necessary. 
By the way, uh, this is a little <coughs> Highlander. This is a little Highlander thing for you, Lee. Uh, the woman that created the, uh, I believe that statue for the Wrath of Kali episode yeah. of Highlander, created that scene, that butt in <laughs> in Ace Ventura too. She created nice. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Highlander, Deborah Kerr Unger. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Deep cuts. Deep yeah. cuts. All right, guys, I want to talk about the Blu-ray special features here. So they had, uh, the main was same story, different movie, creating payback, the director's cut. Uh, director Brian um, Helgen says, the theatrical version to me is what became when I was no longer involved anymore. And he's right about that. The original concept had the dog being killed, Porter being killed, and no one gets the money. They insisted on changes. Can't kill the dog, and Mel has to survive. Get that? And I think it's a better film for that because we like to see that. And we don't like to see dogs killed. Uh, Mel Gibson produced it, suggested the changes. Brian, the director, did not want to direct the rewrite changes, so they parted ways. They shot a new third act, of course. Uh, shot for 10 days, including scenes with Chris, and the prologue was set up with Mel, Mel and the voiceover. What I did find interesting, guys, was the original movie tapes have been gone missing. They used film and negatives and digitals and scans to rebuild the scenes, which I thought was interesting. And uh, Mel Gibson also stated in the short interview released as well that it would have been ideal to shoot in black and white to get that film noir feel. Uh, what is your thoughts on that, Lacey? I, I would have loved a black and white cut. Yeah. I mm -hmm. almost feel like this would have done really well with a spirit uh, uh, or um, yeah, or with the red, with just the red. Um, um, I've completely blanked on a huge, I mean, it had everybody in it. It was the black and white with the Sin City. Thing yeah. Sin City. Yes. Yes. Yeah, like black and white with, with like the, the shot, like all the color pulled out and just the, I think they call it chroma. There's chroma a special key. process. Is it chroma key? Yeah. So, but, and then adding back just the reds and like some of the silvers, mm -hmm. that would have been cool. Um, I liked the two choices that we have that exist. I prefer the the warmer colors in the director's cut because he's in, it almost feels like they, they made him like nicer, funnier, sweeter in the, yeah. in the theatrical. And so they used the color to like make it colder. Yeah. And I think that his genuine personality in the director's cut didn't require that coldness because he was just right. cold. Uh, Lee, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I like the blue just because it is uncomfortable. Mm. It, it always seems like uh, there's like never that moment of warmth. There's never that moment of like comfort for anybody. Uh, you know, you, you never have that beautiful ray of sunshine coming through uh, the window of Scarlet Carson's. There's your V for Vendetta reference. Uh, you know, you just have this discomfort you feel cold watching it i mean i saw it in a theater that was set to 72 degrees so it's just like you know kind of that summer you know that that chilly feeling um what i would say is i wish that it had more film grain and i think the version that i saw on amazon had, had been cleaned up too much uh, i remember it being a little bit grittier when i saw it on screen um you know and that's just a, a part of digital transfer but i i wish that it had been a grittier presentation uh, yeah interesting I like that. I like you film nerds. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So as we wrap up the discussion for the differences between the theatrical version and of course the director's cut, 
Uh, Mel did say uh, at the end of his interview, says, I'm really glad this is being released because it's valid. It's a good film. And it really does reflect that sociopathic version of Porter. He's referring to the director's cut, of course. It's interesting to see two different movies and juxtapose them together. So I want to give you guys a chance to uh, talk about your favorite director's cut scenes. Um, and then uh, I want you to give me your verdict. What do you prefer? Uh, I'm just going to mention real quick that uh, the Val extended scenes I really like in this. And especially when he's asked to move out and he goes down and he loses his uh, goon squad. He's like, you know, they're like, no, no one likes you, Val. And they, they take off. He, he goes, you want it done right? You got to do it yourself. And he turns around and you see the American flags. There you go. That's the American way. <laughs> Just <laughs> love Val for that. Really, really good. Uh, let me get your thoughts on any of your favorite scenes. And um, what do you prefer? Uh, Lee, right back at you. Um, honestly, it's, it's so small, but him getting frisked. And finding yes. all the guns. Yeah. Um, we, other than, uh, we don't see him as dangerous. We see him as duplicitous, but like uh, the first person that he attacks is n already been like in a car accident yeah. in the theatrical cut. And then he's just kind of going back and forth with Lucy Liu. Uh, so we don't, you know, and then he beats up Maria Bella. We don't see him as danger to um, a character capable of fighting back against a, a grown man. Um, you know, and it, I think it changes a little bit, uh, Resnick's character. That's the one thing that I think I would probably add back in. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I like that. Um, so I assume you prefer the theatrical cut then. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Lacey, what about you? Uh, what's, uh, director's cut scenes did you like and what do you prefer the theatrical or the director's? I think that the ladies were better served in the director's cut. I loved the fact, I know this is going to sound terrible, but I think that the, the scene where he beats up his wife is so visceral. Like it's so. She's fighting you, back too. Yeah. She's it's, fighting yeah, back. It's, yeah. it's just because that, I mean that, you, and then you find it cause you don't know what's going on. And then you're like, wow, this guy's just a total jerk. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, you're like, Oh dang okay, no, he should, he should have kept going. Maybe like, like what, you know, um, that's a terrible thing to say, but I mean, you know, someone <laughs> well, to you, I mean, it just, it blows my mind that he held, he had that kind of restraint. You, you, you kind of, so kind of yeah. see where he's coming from. And, okay. um, Lucy Liu's character. I mean, we haven't, I mean, we're going to talk about the cast in a second. Yeah. We'll get into her up. Yeah. Like she had some great kind of, like glances and stuff that see her. I think, I feel like he used a different <laughs> angle or something in the director's cut for certain shots or whatever with her. She just yeah. came across like funnier and more like, like just slightly soured or twisted. And she was just, right. yeah, I liked, I liked her. And then the, the whole, the Asian gang, uh, there was a little bit of extra, you know, kind of interaction with them um, with the chows. Yeah. In the director's cut. So your verdict is, with what as in regards do you to prefer what, like, the director's cut or the theatrical cut i prefer the director's cut if it had the direct if it had the voiceover and the dog lived but i'm telling you right now the dog lives in the theatrical cut so that's the one i would watch again gotcha okay yeah so I, mean? I think you're saying theatrical then yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i uh, i'm with you guys uh the theatrical cut is the one for me and and, and you know I, I know there's probably test screens done with this and there's a reason why test screens are done. And there's just, I, he, I feel, I don't know. I, I love Chris Christopherson 
at the end of this. He just comes in, you know, hits a home run and then he's done. You know, I, I absolutely love him in this. And I, I liked, I liked that uh, he was the big guy. And, and I think that uh, just all these other reasons why, and uh, it's just, to me, it flows better too. And it's tough to take out the theatrical version when I watch the director's cut, because I know what I'm missing, but I respect it for what it is the director's cut. But for me, definitely prefer the theatrical. All right, guys, let's get into a little bit. Oh yeah, Lacey. One one other thing about the differences between if you look at the ad campaigns, they're the two taglines are completely different. I mean, you've got no more Mr. Nice Guy versus nope. now you're gonna root for the bad guy. Yes. So they've literally painted him in the opposite light. I thought that was yeah. interesting to to note. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, let's get into the cast, guys. All right, guys. So I want to get your thoughts on the cast overall because there's some good, there's some good cast members in this, and I really enjoy it for the reason. Especially got Mel Gibson doing his thing. Got Maria Bello is uh, Rosie. Love the scenes with her. You got, uh, of course, Greg Henry as Val. Uh, I love the way it opens up with him. Um, and then uh, you got Lucy Liu comes in and just hits it, kills it. Love her. Uh, um, Deborah Unger as the uh, ex-wife, of course. Well, sort of ex-wife. <laughs> then you get the corrupt cops. One of them played by our, uh, Bill Duke here. Uh, the other one is Jack Conley. Love these guys. Uh, William Devane is Carter. I love William Devane. This is such a great scene. I love uh, when he dresses down Val. It's a good scene, too. And, uh, of course, <laughs> David Pamer's Arthur Stegman. I love that. Uh, and of course, Chris Christopherson, and of course you get this James Coburn guy. Who's that guy? Oh, famous actor comes in, does his thing too. Love his scene. And then I got to shout out and you know who this is, uh, Lee. Jeff Amata. Jeff Amata, famous actor, stunt man, been around, worked with many famous people. We brought him up before in other couch potato theaters. Yeah. So guys, I want to get your thoughts on the cast. Name some of your favorites. Lee, let's start with you. Uh, you know, obviously Mel Gibson, you can't go wrong with this. Uh, the, there's a moment I realized how good an actor he is in this. Um, when he's looking at the guy's ID and trying to smile like him. Yeah. <laughs> and we are watching the character Porter and feeling like, oh, this guy doesn't know how to smile. And like the audience has seen Braveheart. The audience has seen Lethal Weapon, and we have forgotten that Mel Gibson knows how to smile in that moment, and that awkwardness plays through. Uh, yes. Just a, an absolutely beautiful moment. Uh, Rosie, um, I think uh, Maria Bello, uh, I mean, this is the first time she showed up on my radar. Uh, I think it was five years later, she was in the cooler with uh, Bill Macy, and that kind of put her on uh, the rest of the world's map, and she started doing more and more stuff. But this one, Really, really good and really good in um history of violence too. Yeah. And duets. Good. He was the crowning achievements and in duets. Duets. God. Oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Best line Jeez. in that decade of film. She yeah. The best line. I can't repeat it here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love David Pamer every time he steps on scene. He's in um 
my, one of my top three favorite movies, Get Shorty, uh, playing Leo DeVoe. So anytime I see him in one of his stupid hats, just like that one, <laughs> uh, I'm like, yes. Uh, and he, he's always good. Uh, you know, Bill Duke, uh, I remember laughing. Like I'm going to turn screen. you into the syndicate and get a reward. Yeah. <laughs> But Bill Duke, seeing him, you know, with the granny glasses after, you know, being in Predator, like that just kills me. <laughs> um, you know, Christopherson, for a guy that talked, I mean, his menace, his evil, like he didn't do any of the things. He had it done. He was a damn good bad guy. Yeah. Um, you know, got to shout out Deborah Kerr Unger. Um, you know, she uh, had done uh, Highlander 3. She had done... Uh, uh, drawing flies, uh, or no, what was the one with uh, Ewan McGregor? Uh, something like that. But uh, flew under the radar, uh, was amazing a few years later in a movie called uh, The Way with uh, Martin Sheen. Um, I did want to say, uh, I wish we'd had more, and I think the the scene where she gets the crap knocked out of her, if it had happened in correlation with the flashback, it would have made her character better. Yeah. Uh, she really didn't have anything to do other than heroin and shoot. Uh, and like, she wasn't even fridged because her dying wasn't the reason for anything. She's just kind of there. So it's like, it's cold. Um, yeah. I wish they had done more with her character. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's really, and uh, you know, I absolutely love uh, uh, John Glover. Uh, you know, uh, like I remember watching this and thinking, Hey, cool. That's the guy from Gremlins too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, every time I see him in something, he's just, he chews up scenery. He's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and he just kind of understands how to draw the camera to him, but also how to make the scene better. Yeah. And that's a rare quality for an actor. Case in point, Wait. Scrooged. His scene yes. in the dining room. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. John Glover. Oh. oh, and I want Lucy Liu to kick the crap out of me in a song. <laughs> and let it that was... Yeah, that's on my bucket list. That's on no, the no, end of my no. bucket list. <laughs> yeah. Let her work. Let her work, Lee. Let her work. Yep. All right, Lacey, uh, who are your uh, favorite characters? Uh, you just had the picture up. Greg Henry and Lucy Liu, they steal every scene they're in. Um, like I said earlier, Greg Henry can do no wrong in my book. Like, he's so good. And, and he plays, like, polar opposites. I mean, his 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 slimy, smarmy scumbag in this... And and then you know the I mean yeah he just is just delightful. Um, Greg, I mean um, uh, John Glover, like like Lee was saying. I mean, I mean, there's a reason that he managed to stay on Smallville for like eight seasons as Lionel Luther. I mean, he, he outlasted Lex Luther. <laughs> he outlasted Lex Luther. He did, yeah. I mean, and it's just he. I mean, he's so good. Um, and Lucy Liu, just the my favorite part. I mean, I know she beats the crap out of him and all the funny, sexy, funny, whatever. But the shot where she's leaning out the window and she pulls the gun, and she pulls the and she's like, <laughs> just, "I love it! I love it when she I goes, hey, you fat boy.'" <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, okay. Uh, Val for me. I'm going to say, I think he actually kind of steals this film. He is so good in this. And one of my favorite scenes, because you see his demeanor change is when um, 
uh, Stedman meets him and warns him about Porter. And he's like, what? what? He said he was there for Porter. No, he was Porter. And you just see him like get dread and like, you know, and then like the end at the end of that scene, like, don't worry, Val. I got this. Like, you see me reaching for my effing wallet? Yes. <laughs> He's just so good in this. I just uh, one of one of my favorite slimy bad guys. Uh, I I gotta I gotta give it up to uh, oh Val. Yeah. Yes. James Coburn. James yeah, Coburn yeah. was delightful. He had one scene, and it was just hilarious. Such That's man. just mean. Why are you shooting my bags? This <laughs> costs more than that, man. Awesome. There's some outtakes of that. If you watch the special features, um, the outtakes of that scene are hilarious. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, guys. So real quick, I just want to mention that uh, this was released February 5th, 1999. Uh, The director's cut is 90 minutes. The uh, theatrical cut is 101 minutes. Budget about 90 million and made about $161 million. So it made some money there. I've got some reviews here. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes give it a 50% cent, um, and a 69% audience score. And the critic census says, sadistic violence and rote humor saddle a predictable action premise. Now, I like to go to <laughs> Roger e- Ebert's review, um, if we have them, and we do. He says, there is much cleverness in um, ingenuity in payback, but Mel Gibson is the key. The movie wouldn't work without an actor who was heavy on his feet or was too sincere about the material. Gibson is essentially an action comedian who enters into violence with a bemused detachment. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, in quotation. Uh, here he has fun as the movie goes over the top, as when a doctor operates on him for gunshot wounds using whiskey as a painkiller for the doctor, not Gibson. <laughs> Or perhaps himself, or perhaps when he helps himself to the dollars of the beggar's hat, or when and how he recites this little piggy. I thought that was interesting. I don't know. Do you think that was a good review, Lee? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of times Ebert gets too much in his head, you know, like what a movie is supposed to be instead of like, what is this movie supposed to be? Uh, mm-hmm. I think he really understood what it was going for, what it is. Uh, I That scene where he just takes the money from the beggar is just awesome. Shut up! I cured you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know it's uh, it's a it's a valid uh, description. I'd say, uh, you know, they did use the whiskey as a painkiller a little bit for him, or at least to disinfect the wounds. And that, yeah, he poured it over his wound. Yeah, <laughs> that, that hurts just watching it because I've had to do that. Oh, jeez. Okay, I want to give us time to talk about our favorite scenes and moments uh, that maybe we haven't already mentioned yet. Uh, well, you could refer to the director's cut if you want or the uh, um, theatrical version. Uh, Lacey, going to start with you. What are your favorite scenes and moments? Um, I think that Lee was right. The, that one scene where he's in the in the bathroom, like trying to smile, like smile like the other guy, and it's uh, interesting because if you listen to the commentary, they talk about. Um, uh, the fact that they the bathroom they used was practical, and so they couldn't get in to do the shot themselves. So he actually put uh, they put a, a mini cam in the sink, and he kind of like directed it himself. He DP'd himself, which is yep. you know when you're trying to do something, especially something that's so foreign to him or to mm-hmm. his character. <laughs> it just it was yeah, that was a really fun scene. Um, like I already said, the uh, her shooting the gun and then being like. <laughs> that was hilarious. Um, you mean after sh- after shooting him in the back? No, no, no. I'm sorry, Lucy, uh, Lucy Lou. Lou. Oh, Lucy Lou. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then every time he goes up the ladder a step. So when he, like the William Devane stuff where he's standing there and, and doing this whole back and forth and, and just the, his attitude in the scene is so perfect. Um, and then you, you kind of see the alternate side of it when he's talking to, um, uh, $70,000 suits. Um, James Coburn. James Thank Coburn. you. Coburn. James Coburn. Um, so I like how he is such a chameleon throughout the film. I mean, he really does become what he needs to be in each scene to get to what he has, you know, to find his original goal. Gotcha. So. Lee, what about you? Favorite scenes and moments? Um, that one right between the opening and closing credits. <laughs> I mean, we were talking before, like there's not an ounce of fat on this movie. Uh, yeah. It really uh, flows well from beginning to end. Uh, I think the, um, the flashback, uh, you know, of uh, setting up for the, uh, the heist uh, definitely has some uh, weight to it. Uh, I mean, just you see the planning, you see like the intention um, I do like, um, I, th- I think one of the, the smart choices was, uh, him doing the pickpocket thing and yeah. then running the money for all it was worth and like going to the restaurant and it's like, okay, now the card is, uh, you know, been called in stolen. And so now yeah. I have to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that just shows somebody that understands how streets work, that understands, uh, what the clock is, all these little things. Um, he's not anybody's fool. He's not just a guy. Um, but honestly, I mean, how do you pick one scene in this? I mean, I it's, it's really just so well done. <laughs> yeah. That's why I just kept talking. It was like, there's an, and then this one and then this one. And then, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, the whole intro scene, just, it just, as you describe Lee, <coughs> it just grabs you when you realize what he has to do in a short amount of time where you see him getting just barely enough money for some coffee or whatever. And, and then being able to choose his mark on the streets of whose wallet he's going to steal and then how he uses the money to pull the cash out to get the jewelry and then use the jewelry to the pond to get the gun and the extra cash. I just, it's fantastic. I love all of that. And it tells you exactly who this guy is. And the William Devane scene, uh, Mr. Carter is one of my favorite scenes too. When, and what I like about in the director's cut is you see that when he's frisked, that the guy pulls out the thing of um, pennies, which is an old trick you put into your fist mm-hmm. to give a little extra leaded hit weight with that. And then you see him give Carter in, uh, the, you know, after he knocks out his two thugs. I just love that whole scene. And I remember watching that scene for the first time going, is he actually going to shoot Carter? Oh my God, he did. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it, he doesn't even think twice about it. He's like, my money, yes or no? No, boom, you know, and then you're like, oh, now we are on. And Lee, this is like, you know, there's no, like you said, there's no, no fatness at all. And I think that is a, a great, what, great, great. Though, yeah. Can I go back to one thing? Yes, please. Uh, the way he set up Carter was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, he's like, he's hiding the gun in the, the newspaper stand because nobody's buying newspapers at night. So it's like, you know, that's going to be safe for a while. He, and he sees him pull but, up and he's like, here, hold on to this for me. Puts the fingerprints on the gun because he already stole the Oh, you when he sets up the cops, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. What was the, uh, what was the other cop's name? Uh, Bill Duke. I don't and, remember. Uh, but yeah. yeah, like when he sets that up, uh, you know, and like, he's like, yeah, nice, nice weight to it. It's like, okay, can I have it back? And like, he has it there. So it's like, oh yeah, this makes sense to these guys. 
I want to keep this concealed. I don't want to be, you know, flashing yes. this on the street. But now it's got cop prints on it. And he's got that badge that he took off him after they knocked him around. I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to be discussing that gun in a second. But what I like, though, is that you see him putting the gun in the newspaper stand to hide it before then he realizes mm -hmm. that, oh, wait, I got to change my plan here because the cops just. And that reminds me of the other scene I like, too, is when he's looking for Stegman and Stegman's running the uh, the the game with the corrupt cops and you get to meet them for the first time. And I, I love that scene <coughs> as well. But uh, speaking of guns, Lee, as you know that when I have you on, I like to do the segment called Guns, Guns, Guns. <coughs> and uh, if we are doing a uh, podcast with an action movie, and I like to highlight a couple of guns here. And Lee, uh, one of the things that I want to talk about is the actual gun that he gets from the pawn shop here. The Smith & Wesson Model 29-2 from Payback. The pistol shown in this picture that I'm showing here is the actual screen-used firearm from the movie. The gun was auctioned off by Stembridge Gun Rentals in 1999 and later resold by a different auction house. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring the Guns Gun segment into this podcast, because we don't do it for all of our Cast Potato Theaters, is I like it when a weapon is kind of a character. You know, uh, as we mentioned before, you know, there's certain, like, the, the eight gauge shotgun in Appaloosa or the big midi gun that we see um, Jesse, the Ventura, the body Jesse Ventura uses in um, predator. predator yeah. This one here, there's even some more extended scenes in the director's cut in the pawn shop of this. And we see him use it efficiently. And what I also like too, is that he, when he shoots Val, he shoots him three times, one time in the chest to drop him and to drop Val's gun. And then one time in the knee when he's going for Val's going for the uh, ankle holster. And then the third shots to the face with the muffled uh, pillow over his face. But then when he has to give his gun up or he asks the cops to uh, hold it for him while he goes up to, to talk to Carter, when they empty his gun, it feels like that all the bullets came out. I feel like maybe only the extra three came out. I don't know if you notice that or not, but uh, this character, this gun's a character. It's because he's, he's holding it all the time. It's a hand cannon, pretty much a 357. Was it four inch barrel? I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, this is a fantastic weapon. Uh, I am generally not a revolver person. Uh, I'm came up shooting automatics. Um, I have had the chance to fire this in a couple of different variants. Um, the indexing, which is basically like how well you can, um, just naturally aim it without trying is, I mean, for revolvers, I don't think there's a better one. Uh, it's a simple action. Um, very easy to maintain. It does not jam. It does not break. Um, as Raj Shabeja would say, wait, is a sign of reliability. If it jams, you can hit him with it. You know, it's a, just a good, solid practical gun uh can you explain no where that quote is from real quick that is from a movie we need to do on here snatch it is the most quotable movie of 2001 uh <laughs> but he's selling uh <laughs> he's selling a, a roscoe as uh famer says uh, put the they, roscoe on the floor porter slowly yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, i have used that line a few times but it's uh it's just a great weapon um and i mean it's a six shot nothing fancy but like he wasn't getting into, you know, 
he wasn't like thinking he was going on a tactical mission. He was like, I'm going to shoot yeah. this guy. Yeah, he, was, like, he wasn't he was he wasn't in like these shootouts, you know, like he was in the, the director's cut at the end there where he used some yeah. other guns. But yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit with the uh, Asian gang. Yeah, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah, but he had a, he had help with another gun, and obviously they, it was one of those scenes where they shot a lot more bullets than you know was probably <laughs> allowed to, and those with those two guns were capable of. Uh, mm-hmm. And just real quick, I want to give a shout out to the grease gun that the Asian gang used, and um, Stedman probably got a full clip load in the back with it. <laughs> uh, this is uh, a fantastic weapon. Uh, just in terms of history, this was something that could be made at home. This is the M three M three quote grease gun yeah if you had like basic uh metalworking facility you could make this gun and these were made in large numbers uh during world war ii uh but it was such a well-made or well-designed weapon that it saw service through the end of vietnam um you know with uh special forces units it is reliable relatively accurate for a submachine gun and uh, you know i mean when you look at this you can see it looks like a the a grease gun that you would use in a mechanic shop but uh, very fun, and it's used all over the place in Star Wars. So you know, yeah. another another reason to love it. L- Lacey, I got to ask you this. I-, I know you're not a big gun person here, but this scene here, where the Asian gang shows up and shoots the cabbie and Stedman, I still I find it funny. I laugh. Does, is it funny to you guys, Lacey? I um yes, it yeah, it's funny. It's um I almost feel like it's overkill because it felt like it was completely unnecessary after the first like 47 bullets. Um, <laughs> That's why it's funny. Uh by the yeah. time Mel Gibson falls out of the car on the other side, I mean, we're kind of done with Stedman. Like he's basically <laughs> shredded meat at that point. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if if it was a realistic shot, you would have seen skeleton by then. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you what did you think of that scene, Lee? Uh, you know, it's a, a good use of cover and concealment. Uh, it's the kind <laughs> of thing, like, in in a split second, that's probably about the only thing you could do to survive that thing. Uh, because a human body is actually going to offer more resistance than those car doors would. Because there's a whole lot of meat and bone and stuff to slow stuff down. But, like, this much steel is going to get ripped through. And then the uh, fabric on the other side, nothing doing. But <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. I've got some movie trivia. All right. So the first bit of trivia I got here, and I know this from firsthand, that for release in Australia, the U.S. tagline said, get ready to root for the bad guy, was changed to get ready to cheer for the bad guy, because as Mel Gibson himself pointed out, because he's an Australian and I am married to an Australian, so this is how I found this out, that in Australia, to root is slang to have sexual intercourse. So that if you were to go to a uh, sports event in Australia, do not use the term, I'm going to root for this team. You use the term, I'm going to support the team. So remember that. Unless you're a groupie. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there you go. That's fair. According to director commentary, James Coburn found the prop cigars his character was supposed to use unfit for smoking. So he went into Mel Gibson's trailer Gibson wasn't there as he wasn't scheduled for shooting at the moment and helped himself to a few of Gibson's signals. Uh, and Brian uh, Helglund, the director, was working on a script for the film in friend and mentor Richard Donner's office on the Warner Brothers lot during post-production of the previous collaboration, Conspiracy Theory, came out in 1997. One day, 
Brian had gathered his script pages and was on his way home when Donner asked if he could go to the ADR stage when he was scheduled to have a session with Mel Gibson and inform him that he would be late. When Helglin arrived at the stage, Gibson inquired about the script pages under his arm. After reading the first act, Gibson expressed interest in the project, but Helglin informed him that he really wanted to direct it. Gibson offered that he, if he liked the finished script, he would give him a shot. Upon completion, Helglin sent Gibson the script, expected him to pass. However, after a couple of weeks, Gibson called and asked, can you be ready to shoot in 12 weeks? <laughs> Hmm. You know, interesting how uh, Mel said, hey, I'm going to give you a shot here, but you know what? You're fired. I'm going to change the end of the movie. <laughs> so speaking of being fired, Brian was fired from the film two days after he won his Academy Award for L.A. Confidential in 1997. Uh, Brian had was in post-production on the film The Night of the Academy Awards, and having been nominated for his L.A. Confidential script, he really hoped that he would be named the winner. He said, quote, I knew that they were getting close to finally removing me off this movie. And he thought winning the Oscar would mean they couldn't fire him. He won. Sean Connery. <clears throat> Sean Connery tousled his hair backstage while congratulating him. And that was his Sunday night. And on Tuesday, he got fired. So much for the magic of the guys. Dude wins an Oscar and then he gets fired from a film. That's Hollywood for you. Yeah. <laughs> can, can we go back to one thing? Uh, yeah, sure. I think. The Postman deserves uh, a rewatch. I watched that, and I think it's actually a really uh, unique and good post-apocalyptic movie. We don't get them like that. It was a it was a new take. I actually enjoyed it. Uh, Waterworld be- was crap, but I think Postman deserves a second chance from the audience. I actually oh, like Waterworld. I love. Hold on, feature is Waterworld. Okay, that, that is. Mean I have to watch Waterworld. <laughs> okay, hold on. Back, back up. Back up here. So Lacey just said a double feature of Waterworld and Postman. And I just want to let you know, Lee, I like them both. And I love the Postman. I love doing a Waterworld slash Postman double feature. And the fact that we've had a double feature, VHS double feature. And Lacey, you were kind enough to reply to my post about that today. You made some great suggestions. That is an awesome thing. And I've already done it. <laughs> and you're right, Lee. People should give the Postman some love. I think, I think that they felt that it was just, they just said that it was Waterworld on land. Not fair. There's a great story there. I like it. Um, I can't remember the actor that plays the bad guy in it, but he's really good. Yeah. Well, it's like the idea of a post-apocalyptic movie where somebody accidentally finds a way to rebuild society. We don't get that. Yeah. People yeah. survive and escape bad guys, but like they're like, oh, we're making a connection to people. Like that's unique. That deserves like some consideration. Hold on, Lacey just laughed. I want to know why. Well, because the way we're going, we might need to t- like watch it again and take some notes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why would like uh, the though. three of us ever do something like that? What in our history would make you think <laughs> that we would watch a movie with notebooks in hand? <laughs> Been there a few times. All right, guys, let's wrap things up here with our final questions for Catch Potato Theater and Mel Gibson Payback, theatrical and director's guy. I want to get your thought on this, guys. So. Porter lives. Do you want to see a sequel? If you do, what would you like to see? Um, A remake? Or do you think this would be better served as a TV series? Lacey, I'm going to start with you. Um, Okay. So we know there's content. We know there's, we we know there's, you know, original material to look at. Um, I mean, there, there's a series of 
the original character's name is Parker. Um, the Parker books, I think, like I said earlier, I think there's... Is that like the Jason books. Statham Parker? Was that based on one of the books? I don't believe so. I think that, that it was just Point Blank was the only one that's been okay. made. For I mean, we know there's content that could be made. I don't know if this would be the last one. You know, I mean, it seems like yeah. everything would be prequel to this. That would be because, nice to see a prequel, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, start with someone who's maybe... 27 right you know maybe see him going maybe because you know there's a lot of conversation in one of the interviews where mel gibson talks about like the history of his character and and that you know uh, brian helgeland talks about the history <coughs> of the character and talks about how obviously he got into some trouble as a kid and he was like kind of like a neighborhood kid or whatever and he finally got into enough trouble where a judge said you can either go to jail or to the marines and so he right. went and did a step marines and then he comes back so he's got this training now and all this kind of stuff. So I think it'd be interesting to see before this. Right. I don't think it would serve. I don't think sequels would serve it. I think that prequels might. Good and point. if they were like that. that, I would say to do a full like cable series, eight or 10 episodes and do each book as a, as a season. I like that. I like that. Lee, what about you? Uh sequel remake TV series? Um, I think the TV series really is the way to go with something like this. Um, I don't think a remake could capture this lightning in a bottle again. I don't, the, the, you know, not that this is the greatest movie ever made, but the way to make this movie better is so infinitesimally small. Otherwise, um, unless they find like some magic diamond, it's, they're not going to make a better movie of this, but a TV series, um, where maybe we get a couple seasons where uh, Resnick and Porter are friends, uh, right. where we understand why it's the outfit and not the syndicate or vice versa. I, even I don't remember anymore, uh, you know, <laughs> where it was that they're coming from. Uh, you know, I mean, he was in the Marines, obviously. So what was that about? Um, you know, there's, uh, I think the way to do this is to go in depth. And yeah. uh, I think uh, he destroyed his entire world by the end of this movie. If he's just going to be the wandering gunman, I don't think a sequel works because like, okay, who's he going to have revenge on at this point? Cause right. you know, he killed his friend. He killed the entire mafia. Uh, <laughs> he killed his wife, you know, or somebody killed his wife for him. Like it's uh, not done there, but I think uh, a TV series is the way to go. And uh, I think dark and gritty um, taking some notes from the director's cut would be the way to do it. I like that. You know, it's funny when this movie first came out, I wanted a sequel. I was just like, I want to see where these characters go. But as time has gone on, I, I, I'm with you guys. Uh, uh, I want to see what happens before or, you know, and, or retold as a television series. I think that would be fantastic. And as you said, Lacey, I would like to see, uh, like a prequel or, or, you know, we get to see, you know, him as a younger person, maybe in a flashback or something like that. And as you mentioned, Lee, I'd love to see, um, Porter and Val doing earlier heist and kind of seeing where that started from. I want to see, um, I want to see the scenes with Rosie and the wife as well and see how those either intersected or something, or, you know, whatever that, that'd be really, really cool because I think getting a background on the syndicate slash, you know, outfit would be really cool as well. How did that start up? You know, and why does Val want to be go back into that? What happened there? You know, why did he have to buy himself back in? There's a lot of questions that I would like to see answered. Uh, but it's it's tough to see someone else play Porter. Uh, 
like I like I said, this is my favorite Mel Gibson film because of the way that he portrays him. And I just it's I think it's just phenomenal. And and in this movie, just there, there's I, I can I rewatch this film counting the director's cut four times in the last month. That's how much I like this damn movie. I just and, realized oh, yeah. uh, how we how we make it work. How's that? He is um, the antagonist on the next season of Reacher. There you go. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I was just thinking about, Re- I was just like, you know, they could go with Re- go Reacher with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's good. That's good. Also, All I feel right, so like the character in uh, Expendables 3 could be Porter. I was, yes, he was good yeah. in that. I, yeah. like, I like that. that. Stonebanks. <laughs> okay, guys, I have a question. Yeah. Now, not saying this has to be the sequel version of it, but I like to ask our final five by five question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens next? What do you think happens either five minutes? Cause remember they're in the car and he says, you know, we made a promise and you know, she would stop hooking and I'll stop shooting people. And I guess they're heading towards Canada with the money. What happens in the next five minutes, five days, five weeks, five months, or five years after the movie ends? Uh, Lacey. Okay, well, five seconds after the director's cut ends, he dies. She goes to Canada by herself with 70 grand. Um, The theatrical, I think that uh, five weeks later, they realize that it's just not going to work and there's a reason that they didn't stay together in the first place. Maybe she keeps doing her thing and he goes back to driving for her just to keep her safe because he feels for her. But at the same time, you know, the statement was made like, you know, you could have asked me to stop or well, you could have asked me to drive you somewhere else. Yeah. Neither one of them did. So. Leah, what about you? What are you choosing? Five minutes, uh, five days, five weeks, five months, or five. Years? Um, I'm thinking five months. Cause that's when the money's starting to get thin. Uh, and like, they're both realizing like, I, I don't know anything other than hooking and shooting. So how are we going <laughs> to, you know, just what's our day to day? You know, how do we go through this life? Um, and I think them figuring out how to be real people when they've been, you know, criminals and that's their entire thing. Like, how do you get beyond that? And I think, uh, something along the lines of, uh, Val Kilmer and his wife in heat, like that relationship would be what would be going on. You know, that's a good point. Cause I was thinking five months too about the money and I don't see I just don't see Porter changing his ways um, completely. And I just think that he has the urge to steal. He has, it, it, there's a certain thrill to it for him. You know, uh, he's good at it. And I honestly, I don't see uh, Rosie even like surviving. Maybe she's uh, accidentally killed or, you know, maybe she's, you know, something happens and, you know, he gets in a shootout or people come after him and she's the collateral damage of it or something like that. As much as I would love to see those two together, I just, as you said, uh, Lee, I just don't see there anything normal happening after a while, especially when the money does start to, to run dry. I, they just can't be normal people. They just can't, you know, but I would like to see kind of what would happen if, if you know, how that would self-destruct, you know, I don't see it ending in a happy ending. <laughs> trying to figure out what you think they're doing for five months to blow 70 grand in five months. Well, I can, I mean, 70 grand, that's going to last you a minute, especially 20 years ago when it came out. Goodness gracious. You know, well, that's a good also heavily implied that this is even earlier. It's supposed to be like the eighties. Yeah. Cause yeah. like when they're scanning I mean, the card, it's uh, the, yeah. 
but yeah, you know, yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's interesting because I mean, let's face it in, in late eighties, $32,000 a year was considered a reasonable salary for a guy with two kids and a wife at home. Yeah. But remember we've got a hooker and a thug who, who probably haven't, you know, figured out how to make a budget and they're on the run. Right. So, but like, we're talking hotels. We're talking hotels. Yeah. Yeah. They're spending <laughs> a lot of money on just living in general. And I think that uh, they're going to indulge in it because they can. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I would to, not be to, taking Maria Bello to one star hotels. <laughs> well, I mean, That's a good point. You, you look at where, where he, where, where he took her in the theatrical cut, he legitimately literally took her to a one, one star hotel. Yeah. That was <laughs> yeah. a hideout though. That wasn't like a, right. yeah, still, I mean, yeah. he took her somewhere pretty skeezy. I'd take her to that honeymoon suite from Superman too. <laughs> <laughs> Like that. All right, like, guys. Hi, Maria Bello. Let's wrap this up here. I want to get your final <laughs> thoughts on this movie. Um, I broke Lacey. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get no, your final thoughts on this. Sorry. Lacey. It's because I just watched the movie Hot Dog earlier today, and there's a honeymoon, there's a honeymoon suite, much like the honeymoon suite. Never mind. Different. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I, I'm very familiar. I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> Cool beans. All right, guys, let me get your final thoughts on this movie. Where is this film currently ranked now in your fandom? Uh, maybe rewatchability, uh, you know, your perspective now compared to then. Uh, Lacey, let's start with you. I think it's great. Um, I I think as far as rewatchability goes, I think it's definitely something I could pull off the shelf. I'm getting my theater put in tomorrow, and I'm actually thinking this might be a really good one to, to like, see on the big screen and get, you know, once my surround sound gets in, I feel like there's going to be some good, um, you know, some good sound to it. I don't know if it's available in 4k, but this would be a good, um, candidate for 4k, I think. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and, yeah. uh, so I just want to just one real quick mention. We completely forgot Freddie Rodriguez in this movie. <laughs> He's so good as the little punk kid who brings the money and the, the heroin and his mm -hmm. little like attitude. Yeah, now, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he he kind of stole his little scene, um, but yeah. yeah, I think I think that it's definitely rewatchable. I don't think it's it's in my top top five Mel Gibson movies, um, but uh, I think it, if it's going to be rewatchable, I would probably go for the theatrical cut, just specifically because the dog doesn't die. It's true. Lee, yeah. final thoughts on this film. Uh, I absolutely love it. Um, favorite Mel Gibson movie. Uh, it is, it, it has a place of honor in my pantheon. I don't know that I could number it, but it is one of those movies um, like Boondock Saints. You haven't yeah. seen it. You have to see it. And I put it on right there. Like yeah. that is, uh, it is in that realm. Uh, yeah. It, it falls under that little thing where like, oh, you haven't seen it. You're going to see it. And you're, you, 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 you try to get that person to go yeah. to see it. <laughs> and you get the joy of introducing them to something like, yeah. this isn't what I expected from this movie. And yeah. like the, the interesting left turns that they take the, the dialogue, you know, the, the fact that it's so violent and yet they spend such luxurious amounts of time with just dialogue and setup. Like don't shit where you eat. Serve me. <laughs> no, don't shit where you work. I think I like that better. Like they took the time to have that and it's perfectly describes the character that they kill. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, uh, 
I'm an enthusiastic um, promoter of this. Uh, that's where I'll put it. Well said. I agree with you. I'm I'm there too. This is one of those where, you know, when it comes to to Mel Gibson, um, he hasn't had the best press over the last twenty years, <laughs> but he is a good actor and he's found some really good roles in some classic films. You know, a lot of people will say probably Braveheart and the Lethal Weapon films and and you know Mad Max and and um, Mad Max Two are like his crowning achievements for good reason. But there's just something about this character of Porter and the fact that he's only known as Porter and just a certain way that he looks at people and, you know, he's creeping over Val and, you know, while he's, you know, sleeping and, you know, just smoking a cigarette saying, hi, Val, you know, and Val's just like scared to crap, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, there's just so many rewatchable scenes and I never get tired of this. And, you know, whenever it's streaming, is is the quintessential couch potato theater movie for me. Mm -hmm. I just if it pops up, I'm watching. What scene are we in? I am in right there. That's that's the way. So can't I I can't recommend this movie more. It, it is a gem in my library. And thanks to Lacey, I now have three copies of it. So thank you. <laughs> Instead of two. <laughs> but yeah, this is the what is it? The the universal or I guess it's the Canadian slash um uh, Northern Europe version that has both the theatrical and the director's cut on it, including all the special features the director's cut have. So uh, check That's it out. It is. For your collection, for when with people who have collections like yours and like mine, you know, um, that's what we call a space saver. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's yes. got both on it. You, you can get rid of the other two and lose up, you know, but I, I like my original DVD. I, I don't want to get rid of that one. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay. They need to make. I like this movie. I like this movie so much that it will look like this on my DVD rack with three spines of the film. That's how much I love this movie. I love having. It's just it's it's a collector's thing too, you know. So, all right, guys, we have been discussing Payback 1999. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. I can't believe it's been 25 years. Uh, Catch Potato Theater here on the Fandom Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube if you're watching this video. Thank you very much. Hit the like, share it out, uh, subscribe. We appreciate that. Uh, if you're listening to this audio podcast, make sure you watch the video because we showed a lot of cool uh, slides and stuff. So make sure you check that out. Uh, our master feed for all of our audio podcasts can be found on Podbean and FPNet at podbean.com. And uh, also the Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, uh, which includes, of course, Apple Podcast, iTunes. Fandom Podcast Network is on Facebook as well. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, Fandom Podcast Network. My name is Kevin. You can find me on X and Instagram and threads at Spartan underscore Phoenix. Lee, what have you got going on? You're, uh, you got like a, a dojo or something. You're like Kung Fu master movie guy. <laughs> What you got going on, as well as my co-host for uh, Bloody Kings, our Highlander podcast? Uh, I've got it all going on. Uh, you can find me under my name, Lee Fillingsness, on Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, also at The Way of the Way. Um, I've got my production company, Madman Road. Uh, I've got um, Double Action Martial Arts. That's my martial arts and uh, stunt production company. Uh, soon to be another one called The Fight Monkeys. That is my uh, new stunt crew. We're uh, working on our first couple movies right now. Uh, nice. So, yeah, I took uh, all the guys that I know I can work with really well. And I'm like, how about instead of hoping, like, I meet you on set, like, I just sell us as a team. 
And nice. so there's going to be probably a lot of movies in the Midwest being made with my guys. Um, and we are the fight monkeys. <laughs> so uh, reminds me of Chad Stelhesky, uh famous uh, 8711 uh, stunt crew that he has going on. Yeah. Now he's a famous John Wick director and producer and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Well, if you know you can work with people, you know you can say something and not have to do too much and they'll put their thing on it. Like I can take my guys and I know that I can get almost any stunt I need done. And so nice. um, I figured let's just make it official and start working together for real. So. Awesome. Thank you, sir. All right, Lacey. Well, I know you can find or you, we can find you on the Phantom Podcast Network as you're our co-host of Time Warp. Um, but, you know, if anyone wants to reach out, how can they find you? Uh, you, I'm on, what is it? X now, um, lacy pants. That's me. And, um, I'm on the, the Facebook <laughs> because I'm just a really bad social media person. <laughs> that is okay. I like to watch the TikTok. I do not tick or talk. Gotcha. <laughs> well, thank you guys. I uh, hope everyone out there has enjoyed watching and listening to this, uh, special fandom podcast network couch potato theater of payback uh my name is kevin on behalf of my guest lee and Lacey, thank you so much for listening and watching on youtube uh until next time we will see you on the couch 